Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, Tyler, this is a special show on a topic near and dear to your heart. Indeed. Blue Robotics. We're going to be talking about an innovative ocean technology company, uh, which you are affiliated with now. I am so proud of the work that you're doing now with Blue Robotics. But we're going to, we're going to take a deep dive into what Blue Robotics is all about and why it's such an important and innovative uh, technology com- uh, company in the marine space. I, I, it's going to be a really cool show. I am so stoked. And one of the coolest parts about doing this show with you, Peter, uh, is that you and I, we get to share what it is we're working on yeah. b- more broadly. We get to just talk about it. It's in gate. We're engaged. We're ocean and coastal professionals. We're doing this work. And yeah. uh, from time to time, we got to check in on what we're working on. And that is correct. I, I joined up with Blue Robotics, this really exciting marine robotics manufacturing company really located great. here in Southern California. And today, Peter, we're, we're going to have Elisa Miller on. Uh, she's the co-founder of the company. She's also my boss. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So no screwing around, Tyler. Just no keep screwing it clean. around. This is going to be really good. I don't want anything in your annual review. You know, it's gonna That's be right. Good it's going to be a great show. I promise. <laughs> it's going to be good. But no, uh, yeah, no, really, the idea, here, the idea here is to share and to talk about marine robotics kind of in a broad sense but also what we're doing as a company and where we see the marine robotics space going and there's some really exciting things coming up it's a perfect topic for right now i mean sadly uh, the day that we're recording this it has been revealed uh, that the uh, titan uh, submersible that was visiting the titanic imploded uh, there is a great deal of interest in submersibles and in fact, the heroes of the entire story are the ROVs, the remotely operated vehicles that have found the wreckage and will be part of the recovery process. I mean, it's, it, it brings worldwide attention to this technolog- technology and this industry that you are part of. And before we jump into this, the other thing, Tyler, I want to just say is, you know, you and I have been doing this for, I think it's five years. It's coming up. I don't know where exactly, uh, but we've done more than 800. And I want to say I checked about a week or so ago, I think we've done like 865 podcasts on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And every single one of them you have produced and recorded and edited. And uh, it's been an amazing experience. And I'm really glad that out of the work that we do on Coastal News Today and ASPN, you met this community and found this incredibly great job, which I think is perfect uh, for you, and I'm and and actually very very important for the coastal professional community to understand. So, I think it's just like a perfect setup for a show. I I appreciate hearing that, Peter. I'm truly I feel truly blessed to be a part of this company, a part of this community, continuing to work in the ocean and coastal professional space. It's just wonderful. And I really look forward to chatting today about this uh, new world of marine robotics that I'm in uh, with Elisa. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics' team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. 
With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Well, Elisa Miller, a co-founder, I'm very interested in this particular aspect of the story we're going to tell today, and the director of sales and marketing at Blue Robotics uh, out of Torrance, California, or we should say LA. Uh, so glad to have you on the American Shoreline podcast and so interested in learning about the journey you have been on to create this company, uh, Women in Marine Technology, to be the co-founder and a, and a principal in this company is amazing. I can't wait to hear the story of how you built this company with your team and uh, learning all about uh, uh, what the work of this company is going to be. So welcome to ASPN. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Cool. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm going to start with the first question, Tyler. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, Lisa, I was, at least I was, I was reading on, on LinkedIn and I loved your post that you fell into the robotics industry, which is a great line. Um, and really just came across this opportunity and had the gumption and the foresight to really see an opportunity. Can you tell us a little bit or introduce, introduce the story, if you would, um, to our listeners? How did you come to be the co-founder of Blue Robotics, an amazing uh, marine company? So I am from Cape May, New Jersey. So grew up at the beach, uh, work, grew up working at a surf shop, um, like all through college and after college, I decided that I didn't want to follow my original goal of being a high school math teacher and packed up my life and drove across the country to California because California and was really just looking to use my math degree in another way, but I wasn't really sure what that looked like at the time as like a 20, 20 something year old. Well, it's one, it's one of those questions, degrees where people ask you, so what are you going to do with that? You know, it's a little bit like Phoenician history, totally. although mathematics is more <laughs> fundamental. When you get a degree in mathematics, what did you have in mind? You were going to be a teacher. I, that was my plan. Yeah. Okay. I that's a great plan. Math teacher. Thank you. <laughs> 
I have to say, I, I really enjoyed taking mathematics. Um, it made me feel good when I got the answer right, Peter. Me too. I, you know, I got to a certain level. I loved it. And then it got too hard and I couldn't do it after about, I think I got to calculus and I really loved a lot of it, but then I just couldn't, I couldn't conceptually handle it. It was too, it was yeah. too hard. I mean, I think, I think it's interesting, Elisa, that you were a math major, but I also, I, if we could just go back, you know, I, it's, this is cool because we work together and I'm, I'm, I'm just curious about your Cape May coming of age story. I mean, what was it like growing up on the Jersey shore? Were you at the beach all the time? Were your friends beach bums? Like what was the vibe in Cape May as a youngster coming up? <laughs> oh, the vibe. Um, well, it was amazing for four months out of the year because the population exploded and uh, all of the out-of-towners came in and everyone had jobs that they were making lots of money at. So the summer was amazing. Um, but the other eight months out of the year, it, it's it's very quiet. So there's there's not a lot to do other than high school sports or, you know, after school clubs. Um, so the, it, it's definitely a different vibe depending on the season, but yeah, it was super fun to go to the beach in the morning and then roll up for your shift at the surf shop a few hours later. And it was, yeah, I, I've, I'm very fortunate to have had the, uh, coming of age time in such a beautiful place. I mean, were you, would you be at the beach all the time in the summer? Was that just what you would do? All the time. Definitely. <laughs> like rolling, going to work without shoes a lot of the time. <laughs> Pete Smith Surf Shop, I believe is the name of the surf shop. Uh, and you were there for six years. So during your high school years, did you have an inkling in mathematics as a major, you know, is is an esoteric, I would just say an esoteric, the smartest people I knew in college were in mathematics, I thought. Uh, when you were in high school and, and working at the surf, surf shop, and uh, did, you, did you come across uh, uh, research technology and ROVs? I don't think there were ROVs back then, but what, did, you, did you have an early inkling of what your technological interest might be during your high school years and working at Pete, Pete Smith's work, uh, surf shop in Cape May? Honestly, no. I, I didn't even know. I had never even heard of an ROV before I answered the Craigslist ad for Blue Robotics. So my mom has an electrical engineering degree. So she's very technical, but also didn't use that. She went into social work and had a career there. So um I was definitely uh, aware that there were technical jobs out there, but I wasn't really putting two and two together until much later. I do have to ask this one question. I understand you were a, I only bring up the basketball, your basketball career in high school. I mean, New Jersey, you know, some good hoops up in the, <laughs> up in the Northeast. Uh, because I understand you were a power forward, but uh, according to Tyler, uh, your nickname from your mother was Plight Forward. <laughs> is that yeah. true <laughs> and how would you characterize your career <laughs> oh my gosh this is great um <laughs> i i came off well off the bench um i was i would say my <laughs> high school basketball career was uh decent um 
we we made it to the playoffs every year, but I wasn't. There were no Division One schools knocking on my door. No, but it was. It's like I've I've actually, and I mean, I'm not going to say where I saw this, but there, I did. I have I have seen footage. Of, yeah, tell me. I have not seen of my it. boss I'm, I'm playing basketball. And uh, let yeah, me tell you, it was, the, was the, the quality, the, the game was very competitive. It was a competitive ball game. And Elisa, I've got to say, fourth quarter, you put up some big buckets. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, there wasn't much to do in South Jersey in the off season. So we were all in on the, on the uh, high school sports. Well, I just love this background. Um, and it's, it's very cool. Uh, we're obviously working with you. You come from this unique Cape May growing up uh, experience, and I love that you're a baller. Um, and uh, you 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 hinted at it, so you responded. I mean, this is a very cool. The, the origin story of of Blue Robotics is, I have to say, I'm I'm of course biased here, Peter, but I, I it's it's really cool. I mean, the company starts with like a Kickstarter, and Elisa comes in from these earliest. Uh, times in the company, Elisa, why don't you pick it up from like yeah. right around here and tell the story of, of those, you know, first days of blue robotics and how you came to be involved. Cool. Um, so yeah, I was fresh in California. Um, I was at like a soul sucking retail job and I, I knew that I wanted to do something like with my brain, I, you know, just spent the last four years studying math and I wanted to do something with that. But I've also been really, was always really attracted to anything that had to do with uh, the ocean or water environments. So as, um, I don't know how popular it is to find jobs on Craigslist now, but in 2015, that's where we looked yeah. for jobs sometimes. And I found, <laughs> saw an ad for a young marine robotics company. And the position was a an operations assistant. And the duties were such a range, like just a little bit of everything. And as someone who didn't know what they wanted to do, but knew that they could do a lot of different things, that sounded like the perfect position for me. So it kind of combined um a lot of different things that I was looking for in like the start of my career and yeah the Craig okay you gotta tell the story of the solar surfer <laughs> the solar surfer our founder our fearless leader Rusty um was working at his day job and he and one of his friends had uh just gotten into surfing so they had you know a bunch of surfboards laying around. I think they had like a broken foamy at some point and they decided that they wanted to send uh, this surfboard to Hawaii autonomously. Hmm. So they've, they now have this fun side project that they're working on on nights and weekends and they're building up the solar surfer. They're finding the uh, like solar panels, the GPS system, uh, you know, all the different components that they would need for this type of mission, except they couldn't find uh, thrusters or the underwater motor um, at like a hobbyist price point. So there were really no options. And in their research, they realized this giant hole in the market. 
and that lots of other people like from middle school robotics clubs to just anyone who's looking to power something underwater, uh, they were looking for this thing. So they pivoted and came up with this uh, super innovative design that didn't have any oil-filled cavities, so it allowed for a greater depth rating, and they launched this Kickstarter campaign for the T-100 thruster, and that was in 2014, and the response was overwhelmingly positive. Um, they raised like 300% of what their goal was, and that is how Blue Robotics was born. So when you... Okay, so... <clears throat> First of all, I'm curious about as to why a couple guys would be sitting around going, hey, you know what we should do is we should build an autonomous vehicle that can sail from California to Hawaii. As a It's basically an adapted surfboard, right? Right. What the hell was the inspiration for that? I mean, there's a lot of things you can decide to do. That seems very peculiar. What's the story? Yeah, so I guess you need to know a little bit more about their backgrounds. And they, yeah. <laughs> they were working in the aerial drone industry. So they were, uh, you know, watching this industry sort of blow up. And also they were getting into surfing. So again, a combination of their uh, interests. They had excellent. a surfboard. You know, they were on the water multiple times a week just learning how to surf. And that is why they decided to take the drone components to the water. Ooh. So when you join, you do the Craig's, and this is my last question, Tyler. <laughs> uh, you, you respond to the ad and Craigslist. When you arrive at the company, tell us about your first day and how many people was the company at that point? What was what, Where were you guys located? What was the setup? Oh, this is, this is always fun. So I, I remember this day so vividly because it's a Craigslist interview. So my friend's like, don't die in this Craigslist interview. <laughs> but it was just at a, you know, standard, uh, like industrial park. I was interviewed by Rusty and... Uh, like one or two of his, I guess, friends. And they had just moved into the space. So they had like a folding six foot table and like a couple folding chairs. Like, <laughs> I think they had like a banner that said Blue Robotics. And I just remember being so excited at the opportunity to like build something because it was clear that they were just starting out. And there was it was like a blank canvas pretty much. And I just remember thinking that it was such a perfect opportunity for me to help grow something or to help grow something into something much larger and that it had to do with the water, which is so near and dear to my heart. I think that's one of the things that I find most impressive about the company and um, it's a part of the story of the company that I just think is super cool, which is that a, like the, the hobbyist budget, the fact that, you know, Marine robotics, I mean, ladies and gentlemen, when you think of Marine robotics, you probably think of really expensive. It's like everything in the Marine environment is already super expensive. It's true. And then you, you add the word robotics to it. Like, come on. Like we, we know that ROVs cost millions of dollars. We know that, 
you know, the research vessels and all that technology that goes into deep sea exploration and marine robotic stuff is just insanely expensive. Um, that is what kind of in those beginning days, they, they kind of went against and sought to kind of rethink. And I think that the story of the T-100 is like a great example of what was possible there. The, the unique design, um, using modern techniques and things like that to, to come up with the design using computer, all this business. Listen, this is not my forte. What I, what I also want to say is <laughs> they, we make stuff. It's really physically there. And it like, Peter, man, I can't wait to like have you down to the headquarters. I, I know you yeah, love I gotta it. Come Pardon my French. Um, no, I, I'm going to, you up. will, I know. And, <laughs> but when you hold one of these thrusters, we're now onto the T 200, which is the next iteration, but, um, you know, they feel so substantial. They, it really is a, a, a high quality product that costs a couple hundred dollars. And what that does to innovators and people that, you know, maybe they're hobbyists, maybe they're graduate students, maybe they're starting a business, but all of a sudden these barriers to entry, uh, in the space come down. And Elisa, I just, uh, what's, what, what stands out to me is this kind of decision to not just stop with the thrusters and to keep developing the product line. So like aggressively, I mean, it's incredible. I look at what we make we make so much stuff. <laughs> so what's the story there? How did, how did the company come to expand from those early days? Yeah, there are a lot of things that we make. <laughs> um, that is a solid observation. American manufacturing. That's what we all want. We want American companies building things in America. So, yeah, of course, once uh, Rusty started to do more research, he realized that like all of the components were expensive, not just the thruster. That just happened to be the one that he stumbled upon. So that became the uh, Blue Robotics's mission was to like drive down the costs of all of these enabling components. So, you know, one, once you have the thruster, then it doesn't end there. You need a, you know, watertight enclosure to ho hold all the electronics and you need lights and you need different sensors. And we just quickly started producing these items uh, at a much lower cost and till we had all of the components that we needed to make our own underwater vehicle. And that is how the blue ROV2 was born, which is arguably our flagship product. Um, and it's been on the market for, I want to say seven years now, but um, yeah, it was just, the goal was to, and still is to, uh, manufacture uh, just any of the building blocks that you would need for an underwater vehicle or system or any sort of project. I want to, I want to learn more about the ROV, the flagship ROV, but first I want to know if the sailboat made it to Hawaii. <laughs> What's, how did it turn out? Solar Surfer, the Solar Surfer project was shelved until last summer and where where we revived it uh oh, good. we actually did that in a like an effort 
part as part of the development efforts for our new surface vessel, the Blue Boat. So as part of you know building hype for the Blue Boat, we decided we were going to try Solar Surfer again. So Solar Surfer 2.0 uh was the the journey was attempted last summer and i'm sad to say that it didn't make it again (laughs) (laughs) but there are lots of other projects and organizations that i think trial and error is the secret to success is it not i mean it's that's only attempt number two no reason to give up there could be another third time's the charm so uh Elisa, let's talk about, I mean, the, the company founded, I think, in 2015. So we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary. You guys are a manufacturing, design and manufacturing company for uh, remotely operated vehicles, subsurface vehicles. Talk to us about why these products matter. What are they used for? Tell us about, um, tell us about what it is that you guys are producing. Oh, my gosh. I feel like I could talk about the different applications for days. Um, what are they used for? They're used for everything. Um, so yeah, we make the ROV along with components, but the ROV is essentially eyes under the water. So any uh, application or task that you would need to see underwater, um, you could use the ROV for. So uh, they're... Our bread and butter is the fact that they're modular and customizable. So because every job is a little bit different, uh, every vehicle needs to have a little bit uh, different capabilities. So some of the ROVs are doing aquaculture inspections. So they might have a gripper to extract uh, dead fish, or they will have... uh, be incorporated with um, computer vision to spot any holes in the nets, or maybe the ROV is being used for uh, invasive species uh, research or mitigation, and they'll be they'll have different sensors integrated based on that. And really, there's like so many different applications that you could say a word and I could say, tell you an application that I've heard of to like tie it back. <laughs> okay. I will say bluerobotics.com. Uh, we, there's a whole bunch of information on the website and you can check out the blue ROV2 page, the blue boat page, all the stuff that Elisa's talking about here, all the components, it's all on the website. And if I, do say so myself. It's a very nice website. Um, so go ahead and check that out and put, but uh, what Elise is saying here, Peter is so true. And like, I mean, even some of the stuff you'd, you'd be like, wow, that's really simple. But, um, there's a researcher up in the great lakes, a, a graduate student, and she wanted to take, uh, water samples from different locations underneath a frozen lake in the wintertime. Yeah. So she took her blue ROV and just would swim it around with a with a a hose in the gripper and she could suck out <laughs> siphon out samples. siphon out water at from various locations at various depths and create a whole grid of water quality samples from that 
from using it that way. Three-dimensional and, water quality yeah. picture. Wow. In three dimensions, right. In in wintertime. So like, how, how would you do that without a robot? I mean, I suppose you could take a person in, in the freezing water Who wants that? and do it, or yeah. you could drill all over the lake. I don't know if that's even feasible, but you know, this is, this is like a much more efficient way. So you can see how, and the, I, I have to say it's, it's kind of awesome that in this moment that we're in ocean science ocean engineering coastal science coastal engineering technology peter we we t- we cover it all the time on the show like the the way that satellites are changing the way that we understand the planet and understand the oceans well so too are our robots and and sensor packages that can go deeper they can go out in the middle of the ocean and there's no human <laughs> uh directly involved which is a, a tremendous capacity builder. Yeah. And the thing that was missing was the price point. It was just, you know, if it was millions of dollars to to put an ROV into a frozen lake, you know, this graduate student couldn't ever have afforded it. But if that ROV costs a couple, you know, say $5,000, it's it's all of a sudden in range for uh, a whole new set of uses. And I think a lot of these new uses are being kind of invented as we speak, Elisa. That's kind of my my sense of it. Definitely, I, I it's very it's so exciting to me to be like opening the doors to this technology to so many people who have been previously uh, like it hasn't been available to them because of the price point. So they're definitely coming up with new ways to use these systems and these components it must be it must be really exciting uh because tyler we you've talked about this frequently with different guests that we have on particularly in the science and engineering shows that we do about a big data and how it's transforming our understanding of the world and you couple it with ai and you start to get into processing power that can really discern patterns and and understand the world and the universe around us in so much more clarity. That's what we're uh, on the, well, I don't want to say on the precipice of, that's what we're engaged in now. And that's what Blue Robotics seems to be engaged in. Uh, Elisa, it's all about the sensor packages. I know there's that, you know, what this vehicle can do depends on what you attach to it. You mentioned a lot of different options, but do you work with uh, other companies or do you work with other scientists and designers on instrument packages or how how is the vehicle incorporated into say research development projects is this very collaboratively done that's a great question um up until recently we haven't so our software is super open so anytime someone would ask us can we integrate this we'd be like yeah if you have an engineer who can figure that out. So we would really leave that open to the end user, but we're at a point now where we're actively working to collaborate with sonar companies and uh, companies that are making other kinds of sensors and trying to make that integration a lot easier. So we're doing that through our new operating system called Blue OS. Uh, we're hoping it'll be uh, kind of like the the app store of Apple. So we're looking to create that in the underwater 
uh, app space. That sounds cool. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of software stuff. So that's also like black magic to me, but that's one way we're working on that. And then also we're uh, launching a new initiative called the reef where we're uh, going to curate a line of third party accessories that just work well with our systems so that the customer, the end user doesn't have to do a lot of research to figure out what tool would be best for their needs. So if I wanted, you know, temperature sensors, um, water quality parameters, I don't know what instrumentation could be. uh, There's so many uh, uh, packages of instrumentation and detectors, but what is typically, you know, when you think about your customer base, um, is there a common sort of like what seems to be people are using them for the most? What, what are people, how are people applying your technology? Is there anything that you can sort of tell us is, is the most popular way that they're used or is it just everything? Yeah, that's always a hard question. I always say, well, it's pretty much everyone, but some industries that have really uh, shown themselves as a, like early or early-ish adopters of this technology are definitely aquaculture. Um, and then uh, we have a lot of student teams. So just students that are doing research in all different, like, all different things are uh, utilizing the ROV. So yeah, that still doesn't really answer your question of what kind of yeah. package, but those are the main, I would say, like industries that we've seen amongst the many. I would also just add to that that you know we we sell all the base components. So um, if you go out and you look at other ROVs out there, you'll very often see just a bunch of blue robotics stuff all over the machine, you know, like, uh, our thrusters are routinely used throughout the industry as are our lights, as are our enclosures. So the idea would be that, you know, if, if you're another ROV manufacturing company, maybe you have a specialty in some, you know, special type of inspection or something, and you build a very specialized unit for that, but you don't have to go out and reinvent the wheel on the thruster, you know? Uh, we offer a, a very affordable thruster that's, it's proven, it's tested and it's, it's, pretty much, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's industry standard, but it kind of is industry standard, Elisa. I think our thruster is. We're working towards it, but yes. <laughs> the best one, right? How deep, uh, obviously the ratings, uh, depth ratings on these things depend on the, the design and the materials, but uh, can you give us a sense, uh, Elisa, what what depth ranges your equipment can can operate within? Yeah, so we typically design our most of our products to be capable of depths to 300 meters. Um, but that being said, our users are the hackers and you know thinkers of the world. So they're they've been pushing the limits of these products since the jump. And one of my favorite stories to tell is that we have uh, there's a group close to Ambari, like in the Monterey Bay area, that has a modified blue ROV2 that has been living at like 990 meters, basically a thousand meters depth um, for the past 
year. It just had its one year anniversary of like living at depth. Like um, continuously operating. Wow. So obviously that's an edge case, but it it kind of shows the range of what's possible with a little bit of engineering magic. It sounds like a blast. So uh, one of the things that was so fun was when Tyler called me, I don't know, a few months back and said, you know, I'm thinking about this company. Uh, I think we looked it up. I think you were telling me about it, Tyler. It sounded really interesting from the get go. And uh, yeah, I heard that. uh, I don't know. It wasn't really part of the application process, but it was fairly soon after Tyler, you started working with blue robotics, sort of the, uh, employee test is that they send you a box of components and say, <laughs> build a robot and then bring it down to the, to the company and let us show us that you know how to build it and how to operate it. Is that sort of kind of true? <laughs> sort of kind of. Yeah. That's the way it felt. Um, there really wasn't a test at the end, but yeah, no, I was, uh, Elisa was like, I want you to get a blue raw V2. And I was like, really? And yeah, early on, um, I was issued the components. As you say, it comes in a kit. And uh, it's, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, really like, I, I, I want you to know, I have no, I have zero robotics experience in my Political science major. Po- Weren't you political <laughs> science? Public policy. Yes, political science major. That's correct. Yeah, if you can do it. <laughs> now, Tyler. Tyler's a, is quite mechanically capable. I have to say, he's had some great motorcycles. He works on his own truck. I mean, he's yeah. No, we, you're you're mechanical. I mean, yeah, but but you just got a box of parts, and they said you know like an IKEA thing. And this ain't this ain't mechanics you know that i'm accustomed to this is a lot more electronics like there's a raspberry pi computer there's a whole electronics enclosure with a you know a bajillion wires and then you got to wire up all eight thrusters and each thruster has three wires associated with it so Mm -hmm. you're just it's like there's just a lot going into it but of course there's excellent instructions and you go step by step every bit of the way. And I've got to say, it was such a cool experience for me to put this thing together. It got me thinking about our modern world so so much differently. All of a sudden, I was curious about the electronics like in the dishwasher or in the microwave or in my car and you know how different little systems are working and where the computers are and where the chips are. And it was extremely educational. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why, Elisa, Blue Robotics has, I guess, pretty much from the get-go, we have been really associated with STEM education. Definitely. Yeah. That was one of the uh, first immediate markets that Rusty identified in searching for this underwater underwater thruster. there, there were tons of student teams that were building their own thrusters, like out of bilge pumps, which... It doesn't seem like the way to go. Not the way to go, exactly. Um, so that's... Supporting STEM education has been one of our pillars, um, basically, since I mean, since the beginning. And we... It's one of my dreams to have young people be excited about the underwater world in the same way that 
kids grow up wanting to be astronauts or firefighters or teachers. I, I, I think we need to expose them to like this amazing world of underwater technology and show them how exciting it is. So Tyler, did you, so you had to build this, the, the, the ket, uh, what's it called? The, the blue two, the blue ROV two, the blue ROV two, you got it completed. Did you, how did it go? How many days did it take you to assemble it? You know, I took my sweet ass time. <laughs> I mean, I, okay. I was I really would. concerned I was going to mess it up. And I didn't want to strip any screws and I wanted it to look really good because, you know, I felt like I was being evaluated on my performance here and I wanted to do a good job. The takeaways from the experience were really far reaching and deep. And for one, the whole idea of like, what even is a robot? What makes a robot a robot? And it's these like, there's, there's several different connections of technology, major links in the chain that you bring together to make robotics. A lot of this stuff, uh, like Elisa said earlier, is kind of black magic to me. Like, you know, I don't computer code. I don't know anything about computer code. I use computers all the time, but I, I don't understand the coding side of the thing. You know, I, there's hardware all around me. I use my iPhone all the time. Uh, it's got a whole bunch of little systems in there that are you can break them down. You can actually break these these complicated machines down into their subcomponents. Peter, not unlike an engine, not unlike an auto, you know the old school engineering, but like you can break these electronic machines down into their subcomponents and begin to understand each piece. And I find that like from an educational perspective, both in my journey assembling this ROV, but also I think in students generally, whether they're competing in some sort of robotics club, there's the Mate ROV competition, which we've talked about on the American Shoreline Podcast Network in the past. Uh, it's it's incredible as a young person, as a student, to be exposed to all of these, how these different things work together, how it how it is that a hardware component, a firmware component, a software component all come together. To make it so that you can like see the camera in your ROV on your computer screen on land. That's what it takes. It takes all of those things to be stitched together. Well, the reason I, I'm, I'm you know, kind of going into this a little bit, because I, at least I think it's such a cool idea that when you get somebody new to the company and you say, guess what? This is one of the things we're going to help you get into this company. So you've got to build one of these things. And then you have to test it out. And I think, Tyler, I think, did you take it to the Matillaha Dam? Reservoir. Well, I took it. I took it to uh, to a Wait, reservoir up in the mountains, Jameson Lake, and I okay. I dove on the I dove on a valve on the dam. Yeah, and it. I mean, what can I say? It works. Did it's it like, work? Yes, it works. It's incredible. <laughs> and I've got a I've got a, a 360 sonar on it too that I was able to use to navigate, which is uh, as Elisa said earlier, the the sensor packages are really important. Okay. So the, the reason I'm kind of going into that is that is how accessible this product is. And here are the things that I think about when I learn about this thing is all of the clients that we used to work with, Tyler, local government officials who are maintaining channels or residential channels down in Florida are having ability to do bathymetric surveys um, and visual inspection of bulkheads and other port facilities. Um, there is a ton you can do if you can put 
inexpensively eyes and sensors uh, in the water that are durable and reliable and something that you can operate, that your director of public works can order one of these things and get his, his you know, guys down in the physical plant department to put it together because it actually is that accessible. That sounds what it, that's what it sounds like to me. Is that true, Elisa? Yes, that's the goal. It's, we're trying to make it as accessible as possible. We want to put all of the information right into the hands of the users. So we have all of the documentation, all of the CAD models, all of the uh, supplementary materials that you would need to understand this product in this world. And we just put, it, put that right out there. So It's very cool. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be revolutionary. Um, uh, what would it cost uh, if, you know, you, say me as a private citizen, I'm about to move up to Olympia, Washington. I'm going to be on Puget Sound. My intention is to be much more connected to the water than I am here in Austin, Texas. But if I wanted to have, you know, the basic model that I could uh, putz around in uh, Puget Sound and look at things and count stuff and maybe do some surveying of my own. Um, what's the price range for these for these project products? If you were buying an operative system, five or six thousand dollars. Really, that's a bargain. It's a bargain. That's a bargain. You can't get a good used car for five or six thousand dollars right now. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> no, and the idea is that. You would then, you know, obviously, if you're a hobbyist and you just want to fly it around, you wouldn't need to do it. You'd be ready to go, Peter. You'd be ready to go have fun. You could, you could take it down and with the cameras and the lights and stuff. That's yeah, yeah. You can and you can go to the deep ocean. As I recall, six hundred feet is the delineation of deep of the deep ocean, and um, the blue ROV can be configured to go down past that depth. So you could go down and like, you know, turn the lights on and look for cool stuff down there. That sounds great. I would love that. I know. How cool is that? It opens the door. And then of course you can outfit it with specific third party stuff. Some of it will be in our reef line, um, but sensors and, and other attachments that go on to this modular system to do what you want it to do specifically. So is, and it's tethered, right? This particular model is a, a tethered device operated. Is it sort of like, what's the controller system look like? What do you, you know, the thing in your hand, you're going to be, you're going to be guiding it around. Um, tell us about the maneuverability, something of how it's controlled. Tell us about this, this cool system. Well, we use an Xbox controller. So most of okay. our users are pretty familiar with that. Um, we always joke when we're ha like, we hand the controller to someone who's flying the ROV for the first time. We're like, have you ever used one of these? And they just laugh at us. Um, <laughs> yes. For my entire adolescence as a guy, this is what I did in my room. <laughs> was I played video games. We all know that's what most American men do now, especially between the ages of 12 and like 16. I'm pretty sure that's what everybody's doing. Yeah, so that part, super, fam there's a lot of familiarity around that. Um, you can choose if, you know, if you're partial to PlayStation. I don't know. Do they still make PlayStation? I think so, yeah. You could use a PlayStation controller. We use the Xbox controller. But 
That is the control system. Um, and maneuverability, we always recommend the heavy kit upgrade, which essentially just adds uh, two thrusters to the standard configuration. So bumps you to eight thrusters. And then that allows for six degrees of freedom. So can pitch and roll, um, can move freely on the horizontal plane. It, it, it can do uh, all sorts of things with those two extra thrusters in that vectored configuration. Okay, dumb question from someone who doesn't know anything about this stuff. Uh, is it is it neutrally buoyant? Is it does it does it how is it ballasted? And if you if you weren't you know using the thrusters to go to move, would it just float to the surface, or what's the how does that work? Yeah, that's not a dumb question. Just because there's. Uh, lots of answers to that. Okay. Um, so you can adjust the ballast so that it could be negatively buoyant, neutrally buoyant, positively buoyant. Um, our guys like to make it positively buoyant just just in case for some reason uh, tether gets sniffed, you know, it'll float to the surface. Um, but I think depending on the application, that would determine what uh level of buoyancy you would uh try to get to we do there is a we have a crazy story about one of our like friends who had an rov and he always kept his trimmed negatively buoyant and of course at some point the tether was snipped and he lost this rov and then a few years later um someone like had recovered it off the shores of Mexico and like brought it to our office oh, and wow. we're like, we found this ROV, like, can we get it refurbished? And because it was one of our friends who had like a special thruster on it, we instantly recognized it as Tony's uh, ROV. We're, we're like, oh my wow, God. That's incredible. How did this come back? <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, our recommendation is not negatively buoyant, but could something cool could come from that. Were they able to refurbish this and get it working again? Honestly, at that point we were like, we need this RV. We'll just um, give you another <laughs> one. one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that ROV lives in our hall of fame now. Very cool. How many employees are there? And you, can you talk about how the company has grown and changed? And as I say, 10 years, I guess it's 20, is it 2014? At, at 2024 or 2025 is your 10th year? 2024 is our 10 year. Wow. wow. So tell us, yeah, how many, how many people work with Blue Robotics? Now tell us about the company and its business, if you don't mind. Yeah, we're, we're about 50 people now. Um, and that's we're we're a distributed team. So we have a lot of our manufacturing and operations team uh, in the LA headquarters. But then we have an R and D team that's based in Victoria in British Columbia, and then we have our software team that's based in Florianopolis down in Brazil, and then we have on uh, Tyler and my team. We're we're kind of all over the place. So. Uh, we've got a couple people on the East Coast. We've got a teammate in Australia. Yeah, we're all, we, we are truly in all, not every time zone, but we, we do spend all of the time zones. 
Well, Tyler, I know that, uh, you know, you had over the course of the years that we've been working on, you know, Coastal News Today and ASPN, a chance to meet a bazillion coastal professionals of wide variety. What was it about Blue Robotics of all of the places and all the people you've talked to over the years that said, this is the place I want to be? Oh, you know, Peter, I'm such a millennial. It's the vibe. I mean, listen to Elisa <laughs> talk about the company. It's, it's, it doesn't sound the way most marine robotics types of companies sound. Um, and yet they're doing really, really, really cool stuff. And it involves expanding the franchise and expanding the number of people and entities and uh, teams that are creating with this new technology. And I mean, I, I'll tell you, that's, I, I think that that's what the future of the blue economy is really all about. It's, it's, it's this climate change thing we've been talking about all these years. We need to adapt. We need to change this. These are new water working waterfront types of jobs, both on the utilization of this technology at the end user place, but also the entire way through the supply chain. And it just so happens that blue robotics is right at the beginning of the supply chain designing the the building blocks for marine robotics. So, I mean, I just, I was so stoked on the company from the minute I got to know it. I, I think it's, and I still am. I'm, I'm thrilled to, I'm thrilled to work here. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds amazing. So when you're looking at, you know, target markets, here's the company, basically the eyes and ears company for underwater in, you know, information data gathering at a low cost. Uh, there are, as, as I think Elisa, as you were saying, there's, there's sort of an infinite variety of applications out there, but Tyler, when you're looking at the market and, and where this, uh, product would be most helpful, most quickly, are, are you, have you formulated that with Lisa and the brand and marketing team? Do you know where you're, where you think your primary customer base is going to be at this point, 10 years in? Boy, I'm hesitant to answer that question. That's an Elisa question. <laughs> well, that's a joint question for both of us, Tyler. Um, but yeah, there are definitely industries that I'm really excited about. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, I mean, since Tyler started, I've talked to him about the kelp and seaweed industry like every week. So I, that's, that's an area that I... Message received. Message received. <laughs> uh, yeah, we don't. I don't know that much about that industry, but I, I know that it's it's becoming. I hate to use the word trendy, but it's becoming. Uh, it's important. It's yeah. important. Yeah, there, it seems to be the solution for a lot of our problems, like with uh, single-use plastics and that sort of thing. So I, I really want to figure out how that industry could benefit from uh, our low-cost technology. Um, but yeah, that's something Tyler and I are figuring out. I think when I, when I heard about Blue Robotics from Tyler, I thought immediately of Rudy Rudolph, our very good friend over there, now at NV5 um, Geodynamics. Uh, you know, these marine survey... Yeah, yeah geospatial. These marine survey companies... Um, that really need accessible information on bathymetry, particularly, uh, you know, sm small coastal communities that with, with channels to maintain the ability to get out and collect data inexpensively to have this be part of the fleet of vehicles that a, that a coastal city or County might have. 
It just seems like for five or six thousand bucks, you'd want to have one of these for uh, any number of reasons on 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 all of your marine facilities, the ability to inspect and and uh, visually check things to be able to. I don't know. It just seems super useful. Um, I got. I don't know, Tyler. What I don't. You know. Well, I mean, there's three areas that I I think come to mind just right off the bat. Uh, and one of them is actually coastal mapping. I mean, we saw what the aerial drone, Peter, when we first went to ASBPA, my first one, which was, by the way, in New Jersey up at Sandy Hook, I was amazed that there was like one, uh, there was like one drone presentation at the time. The next year, there were a whole bunch, you know, the, the, the student, it was the graduate students that were doing this research. And all of a sudden, they were using LIDAR from flying drones to map dune movement and beach movement, oftentimes like in a pre and post storm context. So you could really tell how the sand was moving before and after a storm. And this was revolutionary. I mean, Peter, you remember how they had how this was done in the old days? I mean, you I guess you could use aerial photography. You could bring an airplane up. That's of course quite expensive. Or you'd actually have to go out with like a, you know, humans and walk around and take measurements and use surveying equipment to nearshore bathymetry was you know yeah guys wading into the surf with long poles and you correct know, sticking it down to the bottom and going this is the shape of the seafloor and the near shore I, yeah no there's just so much you can do and how important that information is in the accessibility of it and the low cost i'll tell you that accurately understanding post-storm beach profiles and offshore bathymetry is worth millions of dollars to coastal communities when they file. If they are doing the projects correctly, uh, FEMA will reimburse local governments for the sand that is lost post-storm, assuming that you have the documented evidence of the condition pre and post. If you could do that inexpensively and have that be part of your normal beach monitoring uh, program, in a city, the accuracy of that information is literally worth millions of dollars. And, you know, I know that it's a big deal to get good data. And uh, this may be an application for this stuff. I don't know. I think it is. And um, I, and there's also, you can imagine, uh, there are certain locations that are just not hospitable, you know, where you would want to take measurements, be they bathymetric soundings or water quality uh, measurements, and you can run these vehicles deep into the Everglades or into shallow areas that you know a, a, a regular survey vessel just could not access. And so there's, there's the ability to learn more about these kind of marsh nearshore systems that we are increasingly uh, hearing about Peter on this show about how these are the spaces that are most vulnerable to climate change, to sea level rise, because uh, it's it's these little changes there that will have big impacts in those zones. So understanding them better is important. We talked about kelp. Um, I do think that uh, regenerative aquaculture, sustainable aquaculture. You know, it's, it's no mystery to our listeners, Peter, that I love this stuff. I think it's I think it's totally the oh, future, yeah. and. But in order to do any of it, we need to monitor the impacts. We need to monitor the water quality. We need to make sure that uh, fish and whales and other perhaps endangered species aren't being negatively impacted by any sort of new development. And these technologies can really help with that, uh, with acoustic monitoring and 
uh, just being able to put put ROVs out there or and and uh, autonomous surface vehicles to cruise around and uh, take water quality samples, for example, you couldn't do that with with humans. You just couldn't keep them operating out there continuously. You can do this with robots now. Um, so that's pretty cool. And then the final one that I'm super jazzed about, Peter, and I would actually put a call out to the listeners out there, particularly if you're involved in marine education, STEM education, we have a new education initiative where we're basically, it's a concept. We're not, we're not even like ready to start it yet. But the, the idea is like the way I described building this Blue Raw V2 kit, this is a great thing that I think we should try to, we should try to get Blue Raw V2 kits into high school STEM classes. That's the initiative. And if we could partner up with Sea Grant or NOAA or some other national nonprofit that does marine education, man, to, 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 to create passion and intrigue into the, the world of marine robotics, this can bring on job opportunities. It can bring on all sorts of great things for young people to get them started early. So as a company, this is a uh, an important thing for us, and Elisa has asked me to to work on this, and I'm I'm stoked to do it. I'm in my own life, it was cool. So I, if I was young, it would be so awesome. Tyler, the Billion Oyster Project over there in New York City, and uh, and and the the high school, the Harbor School, that is on Governor's Island, the Harbor School. They need this. They are doing uh, aquaculture work. They are training all of these young people in marine science. This is such a perfect fit for them and the Billion Oyster Project and all those people. They've been on the show. Uh, that is a great organization that has been very, very successful, but this is a perfect use of that. And the other thing that comes to mind for me is in the National Estuarine Research Reserves, Tyler, we're big fans of them. We did some collaborative shows with with them, um, could you imagine they have all of these education programs where people come and visit these wonderful estuarine systems? Could you imagine if they had one of these at the dock there and, and, and a scientist could take it out into water, show the kids what's underneath the water, look at the oyster beds, look at the condition, take some readings. I mean, all of the nears ought to be flying these things and as true not only as educational tools which would be fantastic but for just the 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 raw scientific capacity that is added uh to these or to these uh systems i you know god there's just a thousand i love the sea grant idea noah ought to be making these available uh to coastal communities and to uh organizations that um there's just a ton of there's a man, better data, more information, real time, less expensive. Uh, what's where do you not want that? You know, you want that everywhere. It's exciting stuff. I mean, when you when you look around and you're feeling like the world's going to shit, look at the marine robotics blue economy explosion space of this technology and how it can be used to positively impact the world. It's it will make you feel better. Absolutely. Now, Alyssa, I'm sorry that we kind of went off on a tangent there, but because uh, you're the guest of our show today, but I, I would love to give you the last word. It really is uh, fantastic what you were able to do. I love the story uh, from Pete's surf, Pete Smith's surf shop uh, into this business and being a co-founder of this company with 50 people down in LA and building these uh, incredible machines. Um, 
it's such an amazing story. But uh, tell us, that, share with our listeners, if you had any final thoughts that you'd like them to understand about Blue Robotics and how people can perhaps be engaged with you, maybe get a hold of one of these things or follow your work. Oh, I got the last words. Okay. Um, Marine Robotics is awesome. And I want everyone to know about it and how cool it is and how brilliant all of the scientists and researchers and engineers and just everyone working in the space is. And I think we do a decent job on our social media accounts of like celebrating the innovation of the space. So I would encourage any listeners who are interested in marine robotics and the blue economy to check us out online, join our community and let us join your journey if you decide to go on one. Yeah. And on LinkedIn, I think your LinkedIn is excellent. Elisa Miller, E-L-I-S-A Miller for all you LinkedIn fans out there. BlueRobotics.com. Check that out. Um, I, I, I think it's really exciting to think about any time that you make uh, technology like this, instrumentation like this, available to the public, it goes in extraordinary directions that people do not foresee. Um, and it's a little bit like um, it's a little bit like amateur astronomy with people who really get into telescopes and instruments that let them see deeper and understand things in a different way. There is a whole universe of citizen astronomers who have discovered planets and comets. And it's just extraordinary what people can do when you give them the capability to understand the world with greater clarity. Lisa, it's such a cool company. It really is. Thank you guys so much for having me. Well, thank you, Tyler. And thank you, Lisa, for being on the American Shoreline podcast. Check it out, everybody. It's called Blue Robotics, bluerobotics.com. It is Elisa Miller. She is the co-founder and the director of marketing uh, and sales for Blue Robotics out of Philadelphia, PA. Great to have you on the show, Lisa, and I hope you have. I wish you all the success with Blue Robotics. It's an awesome company. Thank you. Thank you.